Hey guys, thank you all for, for being with us this morning. We are con- going to continue in our series in Luke, but we are going to go back to the beginning of Luke. So if you remember when we just started Luke, the very first week, we said, hang on a second, we're going to jump from chapter one right to chapter two. And the reason that we did that was because back in September, we wanted to reserve these Advent passages or these nativity passages or the, uh, telling the story of Christ's birth for Christmas. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to the beginning of Luke. So if you've got a Bible there, turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read in a few moments from verse 5 to verse 25, so you can get your finger um, there. And what's uh, unique about Luke's telling of Christ's birth is that it weaves together the birth of Christ with the birth of John the Baptist. Um, We read in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 of the arrival of Jesus, but we also read of the arrival of John, Jesus' cousin. So over the next number of weeks and the run-up through Advent to Christmas, you're going to hear a lot about John and you're going to hear a lot about Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, we get the announcement of John's conception to Elizabeth, John's mother. Then we get the announcement of Jesus' conception to Mary, Jesus' mother. Then after these two relatives meet, then we have the birth of John, and then we have the birth of Christ. And in case you're wondering why, why, why does Luke weave together these two birth stories of John and Jesus? And there, there are kind of two, two reasons why they're woven together like this. The first one is to increase the credibility surrounding Christ's birth. If you remember back, in chapter 1, verse 4, the very first week we we're in this series, Luke, uh, as he was writing this gospel, he was writing it that we might gain certainty. I don't know if you remember that, that we might gain certainty as to who Christ is and what he came to accomplish. And so one of the methods that, that Luke uses to this end to help us in our belief is Luke highlights the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, particularly that there would be a forerunner, that there would, so someone would come and prepare the way for Christ. And so by highlighting highlighting John's story as the fulfillment of prophecy, Luke gains greater credibility when telling of the wonder and the truth and the meaning behind the rest of Jesus' story. And secondly, Luke, he weaves John's birth story into Jesus' birth story, not only to demonstrate credibility, he also wants to highlight the, the contrast between the two of them. We're going to see that although John had a unique role, although John's story is filled with the miraculous, the, the special place of John only serves to highlight the supremacy, the supreme place, the supreme position of Christ, credibility and contrast. That's why these two stories are woven together over the coming weeks. But these aren't the only two stories that are interwoven today, which we are going to see. Today's passage that we're about to read, it speaks about the grandeur of God, His sovereignty over history, His ability to weave a plan of redemption for the world through time that is still spanning our lives today. But also our passage today is a reminder that God, who is all-powerful, is also personal. If you're here today, know that God is personal, that God's plan for the world, for his glory with himself is always the the primary subject, is not a plan that is indifferent to our suffering and our longings. We we, we are are not just spectators of what the gospel means for the world. Rather, in Christ, the story of God's redemptive plan for the world becomes the matter of a life altering personal relationship for us. 
And that is what is so profound about Christmas. The, 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 through the incarnation, the coming of Christ, all that we might feel that is ineffable about life, all the wonder of our existence, all that we wonder, how does this all make sense when we realize the one behind it all it is not a thing or a force or a plan or a feeling, but at the core of humanity's existence stands a person, a person to be known and a person to be known by. So in his coming, in Christ's coming, as a little baby, we find the inter interweaving of God's plan of redemption for the whole world, for his glory, as it plays out on the grandest of scales over history with alongside God's plan to redeem us as people in the most intimate of ways. Today, over the next handful of minutes or so, we're going to see that as we prepare ourselves for Christ's coming, this Advent, that God's plans are never so big, are never so profound, are never so beyond us that He would overlook us. So let's read our passage for today. Luke chapter 5, verse 5 to 25, and it reads like this. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by God to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord." And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to, chil to, to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years." And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning, God, and we're just grateful for your church. We're grateful, God, that we don't do this life, this journey of following you alone, but we have others in our lives to spur us on, to speak truth and encouragement into our lives. God, I pray that that is happening this morning as we gather. God, we come to your word with anticipation. We come to your word with hope. 
knowing that your word is alive and speaks to us. So God, we come dependent on you. I pray that your spirit would be at work in this room even now. God, I pray, God, if there are people here and they need a, a word from you this morning, God, we just invite you to speak. God, we are dependent on you. We bring all of our weakness. We bring all of our um, weakness before you. We lay it at your feet, asking you to work now, I pray in your name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 begins with Luke giving the historical background of these verses. Verse 5 reads, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, which is Judea, which is an opening line that, 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 that epitomizes the lost state that the people of Israel were in at this time. The, 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 this opening verse marks a period of Israel's history when they lived under the reign of a king whose allegiance was to Rome, not to them. King Herod was a symbol not, not of national flourishing and freedom, but he was a symbol of foreign domination and humiliation. King Herod was a symbol of Israel's failure to become who they dreamed that they should be or that they, who they could be. What we find in this opening verse is gently being hinted at are the hopes and the prayers of God's people, hopes for freedom. And as we keep reading, we are introduced to a priest whose name is Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And as we're introduced to this couple, Luke wants to make something very clear from those first verses between verse 5 and verse 7. He wants it to be really clear that Zechariah and Elizabeth have nothing to be ashamed of. The word Luke uses to describe them is blameless, which is exactly the word that carries the tension in these opening verses. Because although Zechariah is a priest, and although this priest has even married a daughter of Aaron, keeping themselves purely within the priestly order, and although they're described as blameless, verse 7 says that they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they both were advanced in years. And it's quite simple what Luke is saying here in verse 5 to verse 7, that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they had no children and this wasn't their fault. They, they, they had no kids and by having no kids, or not being able to have kids, they had done nothing wrong. Which we maybe think, well, duh, Phil. Does, does that really need to be, to be stated? Is, is that not, not obvious? Who would blame someone or hold it against someone if they couldn't or didn't have children? Well, in fact, in the historical context of this passage, that's exactly what would have happened. And we see in verse 25, the other end of the passage, this is what was happening. In verse 25, Elizabeth refers to her reproach. This word is sometimes just translated as her disgrace, which refers to disparaging speech that was being used by those around her to tear her down. Elizabeth would have carried incredible shame for her childlessness. People wouldn't have viewed this as simply something outside of her control, but rather something that stood as a testament that there was something within her, about her, that was shameful. Then also by, by Luke highlighting by this point that both Elizabeth and Zechariah, that they're advanced in years, that they are old, were reminded of the impossibility of their circumstances, that there is nothing that can be done. There is an inevitability about their future that isn't going to change. An inevitability about your future that isn't going to change. You ever feel like that? 
that you know where things are going and that there's nothing that you can do, that you can tell the future as if your present is all the future that there is going to be. It's interesting, this, this isn't the first time in the Bible by any means, if you know your Bible, that there is a, a couple that are carrying the burden of childlessness. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel. Now Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it's, and it's a fair question to ask, why this theme? Why, why this repetition in Scripture of this particular unique struggle? I think at least partly because it's so personal. The, the, the subject of having children or not having children involves matters that are typically private. Having a, having a baby relates to parts of our bodies and areas of our relationships that are private. And so s- struggles in this area isn't something that we freely talk about or know how to talk about or talk about well. And so it's lonely. There, there are some struggles in life, problems that we face, that we hide and maybe, maybe not because of the, the shaming from others that Elizabeth faced, but because there are just some paths in life that we just walk alone. There, there are some experiences in life that are solitary. When it's expected that, that, that you should have moved on by now, but you're having, you, you're, you're still grieving, you're still struggling. And when you, you don't want to keep being a drain by bringing up your pain, Or as we're about to see in the next few verses, maybe your quiet prayer feels questionably relevant compared with the bigger and the more significant issues of the day. Look at verse 8. It says, Now while he, that is Zechariah, was serving as a priest, verse 9, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So what's, what's, what's happening here? It was, it was customary for the priests who served at the t- in the temple in Jerusalem to be allocated different daily tasks. And one of the ways that they decided who would take a particular task was that they cast lots. We would say they, 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 they rolled a dice, and they did this with an understanding that it allowed God to choose who was going to do what. And so on this day, they roll a dice, and Zechariah was given the duty of burning the incense within the temple. And this would have been viewed as a great honor for him. This was a big deal for him because it would have meant entering into the sanctuary within the temple where he would have been only a single curtain away from the Holy of Holies, which was the focal point of the entire temple structure. Zechariah would be only a curtain away from where God's glory and God's presence dwelt. Remember here that, that a priest, Zechariah, he represented God's people. He, he, he went and did his duty on behalf of the people. And this is particularly meaningful based on what he is to do in the temple. He is to go and to burn incense. In this sanctuary, incense was perpetually burned as a symbol of the prayers of God's people. As the incense rose, it was a picture of the prayers of God's people rising. Then look at verse 10. As Zechariah goes in, what are the multitudes doing outside the temple in verse 10? Verse 10 says, And the whole multitudes of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. 
And so do you see the connection between Zechariah's role in burning the incense inside and the crowds that are praying outside? And it's, it's widely believed that what the crowd would have been praying for was their position and their humiliation as a people forced to live under the reign of a king whose allegiance was to Rome. The multitudes were, were praying for divine intervention for God's help to be freed from Roman oppression and for a restoration of their nation. Because in the Jewish imagination, still today, but definitely then, there was the hope of a coming Messiah, a Savior who would restore them as a people. And although this was a religious aspiration that they knew would mean a restoration of their relationship with God and that God would appoint this person in due time, they also perceived this hope to be very much a political or a national aspiration. And so Zechariah walks through the multitudes of praying people And when he gets inside, verse 11 says, There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Verse 12 says, Zechariah, as you can imagine, he got quite a fright. Then in verse 13, the angel says to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And we ask, what prayer? Notice this, Zechariah is, is, is a priest, he is a representative of the people, and he is standing in the holy place beside the altar of incense, which symbolizes the prayers of the people, and he has just walked past a multitude of the people praying for their nation, and he gets inside and the angel appears and doesn't say, Zechariah, I've heard their prayer, the prayer. The angel says, Zechariah, I've heard your prayer. And there's nothing that's told us that Zechariah even has a prayer, but we learn it by what the angel goes on to say. The angel says, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. Do you see what's, what's so amazing here? Zechariah and Elizabeth had a hidden prayer. We don't know exactly what they were praying. It seems inferred that their prayer was as bold as to pray and to ask that God would give them a son even though they were too old. But the point is, don't miss it. It was their prayer. It was nobody nobody else's prayer. It was their private prayer. So do you see how striking this is? Just in case you're you're, you're missing this, that Zechariah is the only person in the whole nation who is in one curtain away from the holiest place that they deem to be in the entire world. And in this moment, he is lighting the incense on behalf of the nation with a symbolic rising of the nation's prayers dependent on him as their representative with multitudes outside the temple praying in unison, not for a baby, but for the demise of King Herod for a restoration of their nation, for a coming Messiah and Savior, not for a baby, but but something corporately and nationally and globally significant, not a baby. Have you ever been in a conversation, and you probably maybe were this week at Thanksgiving, and you know it's something significant, and it's, you know it's something that you should care about, like you know whether it's, it's, it's going to be Trump or, or Biden all over again, or it's a, significant, it's a significant conversation, and you think, yeah, that is a conversation that should be had, kind of, or to, 
discuss Ukraine and, and, and Russia or Israel and Palestine as things that, that you understand do actually matter in the world, but at the same time, it's just not what's on your mind. And it, it's just not at the forefront of your prayers. You know, you know it's important, maybe as we even have conversations as a church and I'm visiting different small groups and you know there's conversations that are important that should be had broadly, that there are significant prayers corporately and nationally and globally, but you just want a baby or a marriage or a friend or a job or a home or your health. Amongst the, the multitudes, you have a prayer nobody else knows about. A hidden prayer, a private prayer. But that's not just it, because when we keep reading, there's a lot that could be squeezed in here. It becomes clear very quickly that this child isn't only going to be a gift to Zachariah and Elizabeth, but is in fact also going to be significant well beyond being the answer to their personal prayer. And verse 14 says, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, and he will be great before the Lord. Then verse 15, it keeps going, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, which was culturally a way particular individuals lived lives distinctly set apart in a religious role. It says, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord and God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people that are prepared. John was, yes, going to be a baby for Zechariah and Elizabeth. He was also going to be the fulfillment of God's promise that before the Messiah, before the coming of Christ as king, there would be a forerunner, who, one who would come first to prepare the way for Christ. And so the angel is saying with a role that echoes the Old Testament prophet Elijah, the fulfillment of God's promise is going to be your son. And so again, Zechariah is standing in the temple during this monumental moment, not only monumental for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but now we see this moment is monumental within Israel's history, but not even only that, this moment is monumental within God's redemptive plan for the whole world. The wait is coming to a, a close Ever, ever since the, the fall in the Garden of Eden over past centuries and centuries and centuries, God has been at work enacting a way, paving a path through the story of Israel as a nation for the coming of the one that would undo all of the pain and the guilt brought about through all of humanity's sin. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news on a cosmic scale. The, the long-awaited coming of Christ was a moment in time on which the history of the world pivoted. There has never been a more corporately, nationally, globally significant conversation to be had than that, what is, that which God is doing in the world to make a means for our salvation. That God would put on flesh and would become a man and would humble himself to be laid in a manger. All of the Old Testament <laughs> points forward towards the passage that we're reading today. And it is so striking to me with all 
that's unfolding with all of the, 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 the magnitude of all that was unfolding on this day that God would have an ear to hear the quiet, private prayer of Zachariah and Elizabeth. Amongst the multitudes who have a prayer nobody even knows about, there's a hidden prayer, a private prayer. In verse 18, we see Zechariah's response to the news. He says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel clearly wasn't very impressed by Zechariah's tone. In verse 19, the angel responds and gives him some more details and says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to you to bring you good news. And I'm unimpressed by Zachariah's lack of simply, and he's unimpressed with Zachariah's lack of simply receiving the good news for the good news that it was. Gabriel tells Zachariah, until this takes place, until this baby is born, because you did not believe my words, but question them, you will be silenced. You, you won't be able to, to speak until this baby is born which leads to Zachariah stumbling out of the temple, as you imagined, in shock and speechless now, making signs to the people, telling them that he has seen a vision. And then in verse 23, he goes home. Then we have the closing paragraph of this episode. On one hand, we get the final announcement of good news. Verse 24 says, After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... Then we also get a glimpse into Elizabeth's suffering that we maybe didn't even realize because it says, and for five months she kept herself hidden. What does, what, what, what does this mean? Why, why did she keep herself hidden? Well, there's two things. She, she kept herself hidden from the time she conceived for five months because it would only have been then after five months that people could have seen that she was no longer barren, that she no longer bore the shame of being childless, which begs the question, secondly, well, if she didn't go outside before her pregnancy becomes visible, what did she do before she was pregnant at all? It's inferred here that even then she kept herself hidden. That the, the reproach of her barrenness was so great that she stayed away. She stayed alone. And these five months mentioned in verse 24 were the final five months of what had been a long, solitary life. Our passage today is the beginning of the interweaving of John's story and Jesus' story, but it has also been the interweaving of the longings of an entire nation with the longings of a single couple, and both in God's sovereignty find their fulfillment. And so what we see is that the God who spans history and the God who guides nations is the same God who is with us when nobody else is. The God who spans history, the God who guides nations, is the same God who is with us when nobody else is. The Christmas story reveals that God is not only appointing times of fulfillment in the story of redemptive history, but he is appointing the times of fulfillment in the lives of his people. And when the multitudes are praying in unison with one plea, 
God hears your plea. In Christ's coming, we find the interweaving of God's plan of redemption for the whole world, for his glory, as it plays out on the grandest scale with and alongside God's plan to redeem us as people in the most intimate of ways. The theme throughout scripture of childlessness and and people that are struggling to bear children exists so that we would know that there is no aspect of ourselves that there is nothing too private, too personal, taboo, and too impossible for God to redeem and weave into his plan of redemption for you and for the world. And so as we enter into this Advent season, remember that God hears the hidden prayers of hidden people. God hears the hidden prayers of hidden people. He listens to what nobody else can hear. And the last question to ask is, do we believe the good news? Do we believe the good news? That no no matter what shame or embarrassment that we carry, no matter what we have done or not done, or what people know or what people don't know, no matter what comes our way or doesn't, when we give our lives to Christ, we no longer live alone in shame, but can walk out the door in freedom in light of God's sovereign love. Elizabeth leaving her house is a picture of us one day entering the kingdom of heaven where we will leave behind all longings and all aloneness and all unfulfilled promises where we will bear no reproach and we will realize that what God has been doing all along at the level of spanning history has always been about making for us a home, a home with him. Because behind all that we might feel is ineffable by life, behind all the wonder of our existence is not a thing or a force or a plan or a feeling, but the core of humanity's existence stands a person, a person to be known by and a person to know, a person to be loved by and a person to love. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you span history, that you hold the whole world in your hands and that you yet still hear us, know us, love us, walk with us through everything. God, we thank you that you are that kind of God. God, I pray, God, that we will find hope in the gospel. It's through Christ's death on the cross that a way has been made that we can have a reconciled relationship, God, with God, with you. God, I pray, God, that that will be our hope, that will be our joy. God, I pray, God, that we will be a people that have eyes to see hidden people, that have eyes and ears to hear hidden prayers. God, may we love one another well, I pray. In your name, amen.